I'm Michael Hainsworth. Ottawa's proposed national pharmacare is not the panacea for climbing health care costs, and there may be better options for getting Canadians the medications they need. The C.D. Howe Institute's policy analyst Rosalie Wanch has reviewed Dr. Eric Hoskins' 171-page report calling for the creation of a new drug agency. Starting in 2022, that new agency would cover common and essential drugs. That initial list would be expanded five years later to a more comprehensive plan that would cost $15 billion a year. Ottawa says the move would save $5 billion a year. Wanch points out that of all the countries in the world with a national health care system, Canada is unique. All other developed nations that have universal coverage for hospital and doctor services include prescription drugs in their Medicare. And really, it makes quite a lot of sense. What's the point of, you know, having a doctor's appointment covered if the prescription that he gives you for whatever ails you, you then can't afford to fill? So one thing is that access to prescription drugs can actually result in further savings down the line related to hospital and doctor services. And as well, they've become a larger and larger portion of how we actually treat patients. And so it's be, as it's become a larger chunk of spending, it's also become a larger part of healthcare. And really since Canada is in the unique situation where we cover hospital and doctor services, but not drugs, it does actually make quite a lot of sense that we should also aim for universal prescription drug insurance. And the total cost on this, according to the 171-page report released uh, by Dr. Hoskins, suggests that this would cost us about $15 billion a year. But even within the document itself, it points out that we spend about $34 billion on prescription medicines. Yes, well, private sources, so either private insurance or people's out-of-pocket expenditures, were about $18 billion in 2016. And so the government currently, uh, though it provides coverage to low-income households, seniors, and some other population groups, actually does only cover a minority of prescription drug expenditures. And the majority of that is covered by either private insurance or people paying out of pocket. And one of the concerns that we have with um, actually, you know, is that $15 billion, that $15 billion of this new program. And also I question how quickly or how much it would actually be possible to achieve some of the savings that are part of the assumption for these costs. Why is that? Simply that one of one of the large assumptions is that employers would save uh, significant costs on providing health insurance for their employees and with the recommendations from the Hoskins committee it appears that we're at least just starting with the essential medicines list and currently most private drug plans cover almost all of the 13,000 drugs that are approved and for sale within Canada so if people, if we are going to have all of that cost, then we should ensure that people's coverage remains at or above the level that they have now. And so I think that that large price tag, people may think that we are going to get access to the same things that we have access to today. A majority of Canadians do have coverage through their employer. And it may be that as we move forward with a universal plan, 
people may realize that the coverage isn't actually as good as they thought it would be. Maybe what we need to do is is get a sense as to where we are right now in the world of prescription drug expenditures. As I say, and as you write, it accounts for a relatively constant share of total health spending. But how are the drug prices determined in the first place? Because as I understand it, there are only two countries on the planet that have higher drug prices than us. It's the United States and Switzerland. That is true, at least from the perspective of uh, patented medications, at least for the uh, regulated maximum prices. And so currently, drug prices in Canada are regulated through something called the Patented Medicine Pricing Review Board, or the PMPRB. And it has the, currently it looks at either drugs that are in the same therapeutic category, as in they treat the same kind of condition to set a benchmark for prices, or if it's a new drug, we will look to the price that is paid in other countries and set our maximum based on that comparison, those comparison countries. And there are already changes underway that would likely result in drug prices falling further with or without universal pharmacare, simply because the PMPRB is in the midst of changes to how it regulates prices. One of those thing, or one of the factors is that it would remove the U.S. from the basket of countries that we compare to. Which I can imagine would bring that overall dollar cost down considerably, considering how much more expensive a drug is in the States than anywhere else. Exactly. It really is. Uh, Canada is, you know, I won't say that our drug prices are too high. We're, they're actually quite comparable to most other countries, except the U.S., and so from that perspective, we are more or less in a similar scenario with most developed countries for our drug prices. And in some cases, they'll be lower. In some cases, they'll be higher. And as well, provincial and uh, provincial plans may actually be paying lower than the cost, say the sticker price or the PMPRB max price, because there's also this very complex system of individual plans negotiating with drug companies for a lower price. And so like we we really actually don't know the true price that Canadians pay for drugs. And even in all of the analyses that are out there, it's assumed that the, the provincial plans are paying the list price. And in reality, there we, we know that it's likely lower than that in a lot of cases. Well, you point out as well that price adjustments can take the form of discounts, rebates granted by the pharmaceutical companies to the provincial insurance plans and, and the large purchasers that will adjust that overall cost per pill, so to speak. Exactly. And so another thing that's already currently underway is, and began with the federal budget this year was the creation of the new Canadian Drug Agency or like, Canadian Drug Agency or Canada Drug Agency, whichever one it was. And effectively, it looks like it will be able to marshal similar negotiating power to a single-payer universal pharmacare plan simply because it will actually be empowered to negotiate prices on behalf of all prescription drug plans in Canada, which is where we actually have some of the current differences where the private plans, because they aren't as large, they don't have as many patients in them as the larger provincial plans, they aren't able to get the same level of discounts that are that the provincial plans are able to achieve. So by actually consolidating all of that negotiating power, you've effectively created the same negotiating power as a single universal federal plan without actually creating the plan. 
So it's one of those things that with or without actually adopting universal pharmacare that's publicly funded, we can achieve similar discounts while maintaining a private insurance market. So you're telling us that we're already going to see a decline in prescription drug prices because we're changing the model by which we determine what that maximum price a drug company can charge a Canadian for a pill. But add in the bulk purchase that comes with amalgamating the 100,000 different uh, provincial plans and, and corporate plans that are buying drugs at that level. Does that get us to what they're predicting, which is a drop of roughly $5 billion a year in prescription drug costs once fully implemented? Well, I'm not sure exactly how much savings we can expect, simply because we don't have enough details about exactly how the PMPRB plans to implement its proposed change, the proposed changes, as well as what the new drug agency will actually, how it will function once it's actually up and running. It's very early days. It basically started with a mandate this February. And um, for those of you that have some knowledge of Canadian healthcare, Right now, it seems to be moving very quickly, but these things do take time and should be done relatively slowly and carefully. And so I think that it's really whether we will be able to achieve the savings in the Hoshkin, that Hoshkins report estimates uh, with National Pharmacare, I don't have a reason to doubt that it would be possible. I'm simply arguing that we could likely achieve similar savings without a full, without going the, I'll say the most drastic route, which is to have a universal single payer plan. We could likely achieve similar discounts via things that are already going on. But if you're calling for a slow and steady approach to this, what though then of the expectation that the initial list of common and essential drugs that would be on the plan by January 1st of 2022 be expanded by January of 2027? Is 2027 a reasonable timeline? Seems awfully far away. Well, I think it's even a short timeline to have agreement on the essential medicines, because even though we do call them essential medicines for primary care, there's 125 of them on the list. Currently, no provincial plan covers all 125 medicines. So already, the provincial plan, there will be some negotiations about whether all of those drugs actually should be part of the list and all provinces will have to make additions to their formularies and that's before we even get into thinking about more comprehensive coverage so i think that setting the the goal of 2027 is admirable but i would be quite shocked if we were actually to manage to have a comprehensive national formulary by then because really it has been an ongoing process of expanding each province expands its formulary. There's been more joint negotiating through the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance. And really the new Canada Drug Agency is sort of an extension of this long, slow evolutionary process towards you know, consolidating our negotiating power as well as harmonizing access to important medications across the country. So it's this process has already been ongoing and we're just sort of in a new sprint I would say that it's there are sort of fits and fits and spurts and then there's sort of slowdown periods where they have to work out the tough interprovincial jurisdictional questions they have to work out tough questions about who's going to fund what and for how much and I think that all of that negotiating will be 
a longer and more tedious process than it seems that the Hodgkins committee hopes it will be. Talk about the sprint, though. We've got Monday, October 21st looming as the next federal election. Does this have a, a hope of becoming reality and, and, and made possible before that point? Because I can imagine there are political considerations on both sides of the aisle. I doubt that it will be possible to implement enough that it, we would be sort of locked into a path by October. So, you know, the current government might take some steps, may have some additions to the mandate or more information about what the Canada Drug Agency will be. But realistically, I don't see them taking a large step towards National Pharmacare before the election. And really, I think that this just sets up the, de the debate between whether it should be a universal federal plan or whether it should be a mix of public and private that's administered provincially. It really is, I think, just going to complicate the issue because these are very complex and important issues and the details of which are pretty nuanced. And I just think that adding political, uh, the political fire, the fuel to the fire, I'm going to say political fuel is being added to the fire simply because we do have the election. And so I think this debate about what we, what it should be is actually going to heat up over the summer more likely than we are actually going to be taking real steps towards implementation. So this is by and large a political document then that's been released because it's going to be over the course of the election campaign bandied about and discussed and debated. And we already know the opposition conservatives are against the idea of this. They just want to fill in the gaps as opposed to do a national program like this. Yes. And one thing that I would like to point out is what we what we really should be focusing on instead of saying we need universal pharmacare and then talking about how we should go about doing it. I think it would be helpful to potentially set a bit of the context about where we are now. Um, so like I said a little bit earlier, the majority of Canadians actually are covered already by private insurance companies. They cover between 62 and 68% of the population. And about 84% of Canadians are eligible for some form of public coverage, but only about 34% are actually enrolled. And that could be for a lot of reasons. It could be that they just simply don't know that they're, they're eligible for this coverage, so they don't seek it. It could be that they have alternative private coverage, so they simply don't need the public plan. Um, as well, there, there is quite a lot of variability in terms of who is eligible and the scope of what's covered from province to province. So only about 28% of the population in Newfoundland is eligible for public insurance. And in Ontario, about 65% is eligible. So really, uh, across the country, as it stands, there's only about 11% of the population that doesn't have any coverage. And so I think it is a reasonable question to ask about whether it's worth spending $15 billion on a universal program when we could potentially, from our recent research report, I estimate that a filling the gaps approach would cost between $2.2 and $5.4 billion across the country annually. So for you know essentially a third of the cost, we could achieve the same goal. We wouldn't have that coast-to-coast-to-coast -to -coast -to -coast coverage that you would get with Universal Pharmacare that gives us purchasing power. Well, I think that we actually could because there is the new Canada Drug Agency and currently the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance negotiates on behalf of all insurance plans in the country for generic drugs. 
And so that's they could simply repeat that process for patented medications, and that would basically mean that private insurance companies could then access similar discounts to the public plans, and we could achieve similar savings. So it doesn't need to be a single buyer. It needs to be a single negotiator. So if we set aside the political opinions on the idea of national pharmacare and universal pharmacare, what though of the philosophical considerations? Because when we pay for a pill, a portion of that payment goes to paying off the research and development that was necessary to make that pill possible in the first place. Yes, that's that is uh, definitely true. And it's likely one of the reasons that the PMPRB has not been more restrictive in its regulation of drug prices up to this point. And, you know, there is pressure from trading partners to the, to make sure that Canada is contributing its fair share to global R&D in the pharmaceutical market. And really because Canada's prices are comparable to or slightly higher than a lot of other developed nations, what, uh, what I've concluded essentially is that there's not a good case to say that Canada would be free riding off of the R&D, there are the profits of the pharmaceutical industry going into R&D from any country except for the US. We, there is a strong argument that we are free riding off of US spending on pharmaceuticals, but that is also true for every other country that is not the United States. Well, then where's the CD How stand on the idea that the Americans are paying more than anyone else? It sounds a lot like that is because they've got a very different approach to health care in the first place that is very profit-centric, and therefore it's a free market that is allowing them to raise prices to the levels that they are at versus the, the dampening down that we're seeing elsewhere in the world. Well, and I would say that there is actually quite an appetite growing in the U.S. for the idea of regulating drug prices. Current, basically, the U.S. doesn't regulate drug prices at all. They can be whatever price they want, but they do have some restrictions on what Medicare and Medicaid, so the U.S. government-run programs, will pay for drugs, but they benchmark to other prices within the U.S., and since there's no ceiling on those, even the public plans in the United States tend to pay much higher prices that, for drugs than if they were to, you know, if it was a purchaser in a different country. And so there is also an appetite in the U.S. to do something about their drug prices. And currently, they, the U.S. accounts for 70% of global pharmaceutical, patenting pharmaceutical company industry profits. And... So that would be a major disruptor for basically the entire global pharmaceutical industry if the U.S. were to actually move forward with deciding that it was going to bring its prices more in line with other developed nations. And, you know, not to necessarily go back to politics, but I think we all know how polarized the U.S. political environment is at the moment. And this is actually one issue that Donald Trump and Bernie Saunders agree on is that drug prices are too high. And whether or not that is actually the case is really, really that becomes a US issue. But if they regulate drug prices, then it will have drastic impacts on pharmaceutical industry profits. And as a result, likely have very strong impacts on the resources devoted to developing treatments for rare diseases, antibiotic resistance, basically everything new 
that we would hope for would probably take longer because the investment, the profits for the investment simply wouldn't be there. What do we expect by way of the business reaction in Canada to this? Because as you point out, there are expectations that this would ease that burden. And the report itself predicts that businesses would save about 750 bucks an employee each year with a plan like this. Does that jibe with your view and does that jibe with what business thinks? Well, I think that that is overly optimistic because what I would say is that anyone that currently has an employer provided plan probably has on their formulary almost 13,000 drugs, including all the different strengths and methods of delivery. Whereas this new program initially is just going to be 125 essential medicines. And so the likelihood that uh, employees would see their employer cutting back on their coverage because there's this new uh, public plan would, to me, seem very unlikely. As well, about a third of the people that are covered by private insurance are actually public sector employees. So just to go another layer deeper, do you think their union would be accepting of the idea that this coverage is now going to be canceled or dialed back in any significant way because you now have access to drugs through the public plan that you had access to before anyway? It's really just that until the national plan is actually up to a level where it would deliver comparable value for consumers, the the private insurance industry really is going to be here to stay because it the public plan just simply will not offer similar coverage it will offer a more restricted formulary may have different access restrictions and it will take a long time before it is truly comprehensive and i think that a good lesson for this is actually with the recent experience with ohip plus in ontario when the government expanded public drug coverage to everyone under 25 ahead of their private plans, there was actually quite a few people that found that medications they had had access to before, they either didn't have access to or now actually faced higher out-of-pocket costs. So, you know, now the government has actually rolled that back to only cover the people under 25 that don't have access to private coverage. And so I think that 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 lesson in Ontario, where we actually went the full way with a plan that is the public first dollar coverage, and it wasn't actually that popular when we rolled it out. And the fill the gaps approach for that age group is both cheaper and more popular. So if we're not really going to see corporate Canada come on side with this, and as you suggest, maybe even the union contingent in this country would not be on side with this. It sounds like it's going to be a tough road to hoe for the Liberals going into election 2019. Well, I think if we ground this debate in sort of the facts, what where we actually are and are realistic about the people that currently don't have coverage, the people that are actually quite well served by our current market, even if it is not as efficient as it could be, or, you know, private companies face higher prices, there are already things underway to address those concerns. And so really it's a hard sell. I think it's more of a notional idea that universal first dollar coverage is best. And at the moment there's a large federal appetite for spending and provinces are under strain 
from the increasing costs of healthcare in general and just the not that drug prices have increased significantly drug prices have actually decreased but because of population growth and demographic aging as well as new biologic or high highly expensive treatments hitting the market really there is a lot of pressure on provincial governments to keep their health system sustainable and so it's a definitely a an enticing proposition for the federal government to offer to cover the incremental costs of expanding coverage because that reduces the pressure on provinces so i think that there's they may be able to get some support across the country at least from provincial governments but as we move forward i think it's careful for canadians should be careful and consider what exactly we are signing up for just because we like the idea doesn't mean that we'll like the result Rosalie, thank you for your time and insight. Thanks for having me. Always love to chat. Rosalie Wanch is a policy analyst with the C.D. Howe Institute. She joined us from her office in Toronto. Still to come from the C.D. Howe, housing regulations. Too much of a good thing? The Institute hosts Brian Peterson, the director of the Real Estate Sector Stability Division at the Bank of Canada, along with CIBC Chief Economist Benjamin Tal and David Wilkes of the Building Industry and Land Development Association. That's June 21st. On June 25th, the Calgary office hosts a roundtable luncheon on the future of Alberta's crude by rail with James Cairns of CN Rail, Jackie Forrest of Arc Energy Research Institute, and the executive fellow of the University of Calgary School of Public Policy and a former VP at Imperial Oil, Brian Livingston. Visit cdhow.org for more information. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.